The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 19, of the Law of God, Paragraphs 6 and 7. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them, as well as to others, in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. Discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate, to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve, and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it, in like manner, show them God's approbation of obedience, and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. So as a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. Paragraph 7. Neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. Welcome to episode 58 of This We Confess, and it has been a long time coming. The last episode was produced back in June, and I took several months away from the podcast. I've just felt that during time of lockdown, I was writing more, preparing more, and I just didn't have much more energy to also produce the podcast. But today I'm getting back on the podcast horse and by the grace of God we will continue from now, the middle of November, to the end of June 2021. In the last episode we started chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession entitled Of the Law of God and as that was several months ago I just want to give you a little reminder of what it was we touched on. This chapter begins by reminding us of the covenant of works, a covenant with Adam whereby he was promised everlasting life in light of his ongoing perfect obedience. 
Now, as we know, Adam fell, he failed to obey, and with that fall came sin in this world and the wages of sin, which is death. Adam was a law breaker. But what do we mean when we consider the law of God? This chapter helps us to understand exactly that by dividing God's law into three. We've spoken about the moral law. This moral law is written on humanity's hearts and was republished at Mount Sinai on two tablets of stone. This moral law continues to this very day. As Christians, we are obliged to follow it. We are to honour our parents. We are to keep the Sabbath day holy. We are to not take the Lord's name in vain. The moral law of God is still in force. Now, the moral law does not save us. None of us could obey it perfectly and completely. It is not an alternative path to salvation. But with hearts that have been made new by the working of the Spirit, we obey God's moral law, thankfully in response to what he has already done in our lives. Added to this moral law in the Old Testament, we also find what we call the civic and ceremonial laws. We spoke back in June of the church existing in the Old Testament. The church is described in this chapter as a church under age. And to that church under age was given the civic and ceremonial law to govern how they were to live and how they were to worship. These laws are no longer enforced. Christ has come. He is the substance of these laws and no longer are the shadows required. So the civic and ceremonial law has been done away with, but the moral law of God still remains in force. And so with that said, we turn now to chapter 19 and paragraph 6. This paragraph begins by stating that true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned. This always needs to be restated. We are always men and women tempted to fall into legalism, believing that my good works will somehow make me a little bit better in the sight of Almighty God. Perish the thought, this cannot be, this is not the case. As believers, as we strive to follow and obey God's moral law, we must understand that we will not be justified by our obedience to it, nor will we be condemned if we fail to keep it. We are sinners who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul tells us in Romans 6 and verse 14, Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 2 and 16, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. My brothers and sisters, please underline that in your minds. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Therefore, it should be impossible for us to believe that the moral law and our obedience or lack of to it will see us either justified or condemned. Only Jesus and his perfect obedience and his perfect sacrifice will do for sinners. And yet as reformed believers, we believe and accept that the moral law is of great use to the Christian. We speak as reformed Christians of the threefold use of God's law. It shows us his character, his holiness, his purity. It points us to Jesus, our only saviour, and it restrains sin. Again, it shows us God's character, his holiness, his purity. 
It points us to Jesus as the only saviour of sinners like us. And thirdly, it restrains sin. Here is the threefold use of the law in the believer's life. You see, we would make a great mistake if we believe that the law has no use in our lives. Some Christians today argue exactly that, that we are in times of grace. We are men and women and it's all about grace. Don't speak to me about obedience and don't demand any standard. But we do not impose upon Christians an incorrect standard. God's moral law is still in force for a Christian. And as we seek to obey it every day, once more, it shows us his holy character, it points us to Christ, the only saviour of sinners, and it helps restrain our sin. God's law is good. Paul says that in Romans 7 and verse 12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And later in that same chapter, Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here in these verses we see that the law of God has an important role in the life of a believer. It isn't pulling us back to days of works. Perish the thought. We live in an age of grace. Again, as we have stated already in this episode, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But as Paul says in Galatians 5, 14-23, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. But these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Here is the Spirit-filled and Spirit-led life. As Christians responding to the gospel of grace in our lives, we strive to obey God's moral law. The Spirit works in us every day, growing us up in the faith and sanctifying us and renewing us in every way. The moral law every day in our lives reminds us of God's character, it points us to Jesus and it restrains sin. It is a gift from God and it is of great use to us as the Westminster Divines write as well as to others in that as a rule of life it informs them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. The law of God shows us the will of God for our lives. It shows us his holy character and his purity. And so when God's moral law speaks, we would do well to walk accordingly. It is no wonder then that in Galatians 3 and verse 24, Paul tells us that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law as our guardian, as our teacher, teaches us much. 
as we've already discovered, it teaches us who God is. It shows us his purity and holiness and that which he requires of humanity. But as the confession continues, the law also teaches us the sinful pollutions of our nature. The law shows us our sin. And so as we examine ourselves, say the Westminster Divines, we may come to further conviction of our sin, humiliation for our sin, and hatred for our sin. Paul says in Romans 7 and verse 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Romans 3 and verse 20, For by works of the law, No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law teaches us our wretched condition. It shows us how far short of God's righteous standard we fall. But equally, the law does not leave us wallowing in the pit. It causes us to hate our sin, to come under further conviction of it, humiliation for it, to flee from it. And in this sense, the word of James chapter 1, verse 23 onwards is fulfilled. He says, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, He will be blessed in his doing. The law shows us our wretchedness and it forces us to act. And what do we need if we understand our depravity and our sin? What is it that we require if we, as Paul in Romans 7 and 24, are wretched men and women looking for someone to deliver us from this body of death? The law teaches us our sin and therefore it teaches us our need of Christ. The Westminster Divines write that the law gives us a clearer sight of the need that we have of Jesus and the perfection of his obedience. So not only does the law show us our wretchedness, but it shows us the righteousness of Christ. It convicts us of our need of Jesus. It sends us fleeing and running to the only saviour of guilty sinners like us. And so in this way, it is as Romans 8 and 3 to 4 says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled on us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, the law is not evil, it is not wicked, it is good. It is a teacher, teaching us God's holiness, perfection and the duty he requires of man, teaching us our depravity and teaching us our need of a saviour. When this lesson has been taught, we run to Christ and we find that he is able to save to the uttermost all of those who call upon him. He is the only one with perfect obedience keeping the law of God actively and passively on our behalf. Thanks be to God today for our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Additionally, the third use of the law tells us that it restrains sin. The Westminster Vines put it this way as this paragraph continues. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions 
in that it forbids sin. What do we mean? Well, the scriptures, as always, are incredibly helpful. In James 2 and verse 11, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. As believers, we know that the moral law, which shows us the character and purity and sinlessness of a righteous God, he has commanded us not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to covet. Therefore, we are well taught, and therefore, knowing this, the law is a restrainer of the sin in our lives. We are not left to our own devices to figure out what may or may not please a holy God. We know in our bones that it is a sin before such a God to take a life. We know that we are to keep the Lord's day holy. We know that we are not to take his name in vain. And therefore, knowing this, even though the flesh is weak, the law restrains such sin in our lives. That is not to say we will always keep the law perfectly. We've made it clear already that that is simply impossible for each one of us. But the law leaves us without any excuse. It is as we read in Psalm 119, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. Verse 101. And then a few verses later in verse 104, Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. And verse 128. Therefore I consider all your precepts to be right and I hate every false way. The law restrains sin in the lives of the regenerate, the lives of those who have been regenerated by the Spirit's work. We are still sinful, and yet at the same time we are justified, and the law acts as a restrainer in our lives against those things that the sinful flesh longs to do. And so we have heard of the threefold use of God's law in the believer's life, But the Westminster Divines continue by also teaching us about the warnings of the law and the promises of it. The threatenings of the law serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. What do the Divines mean? Well, we see it in Psalm 89 verse 30 to 34. If his children forsake my law, says the Lord, And do not walk according to my rules. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. The threats of not keeping God's law show us what our sins rightfully deserve. It magnifies the grace of God in our lives. It causes us to tremble before such a God, to seek to fear him more and more each and every day. And even the threatenings of God's law leave us knowing exactly who it is that we bend the knee before. And yet we have been freed from the curse of the law. We know that even if we fall into sin and break God's law, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the same way, the promises of blessing attached to the law of God show us how God is pleased with our obedience and what blessings we can expect 
upon performance of God's law. Now this isn't to say that we are somehow in a covenant of works again, that if we are good then God will pat us on the head and reward us with riches. Not at all. We do not believe this. But it is good to follow the law of God. It is pleasing to follow what God has said. The temple of God, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16, can have no agreement with idols. We are the temple of the living God. God has said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. There is great reward, says the psalmist in Psalm 19 and verse 11, great reward in keeping the law of God. And so knowing the threats attached to breaking God's law, we are humbled and again run to Jesus. And knowing how pleasing it is to the Lord to walk in our ways, we fear him, we seek to honour him, we seek to cherish and love and obey him above all else. The law is of great use in a believer's life. But again, as this paragraph closes, the divines seek to bring us some balance. Just because we do good and refrain from evil, they say, just because the law encourages one and deters the other, it is not evidence of the individual being under the law and not under grace. Again, the divines are clear. When we preach the moral law of God, when we say that it is still valid for a believer, that it has not been done away with, we are not ushering in another day of law. We are under grace. And so when we strive to obey God's law, and when we strive to flee from the opposite of it, it doesn't mean that we are returning to days of legalism. We are still men and women under grace, still saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The divines make this exact point in paragraph 7. They say that neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but they sweetly comply with it. Paul says this in Galatians 3 and verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The threefold use of the law in a believer's life is not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but it complies with it sweetly. What a wonderful way to put this walk, this Christian life of ours. The divines explain it further. They say that the Spirit of Christ is the one who subdues and enables the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God reveals in the law requires to be done. The Lord is the one who, as Ezekiel 36, 27 tells us, puts his spirit within us. He is the one who causes us to walk in his statutes and is the one who causes us to be careful to obey all of his rules. The Lord says in Jeremiah 31 and verse 33, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here in this covenantal language, this language of the covenant of grace, God explains the relationship with his people. He renews them, he saves them, he produces fruit in them. He causes them to walk in his way. He gives them hearts of flesh, putting his law within them. No longer written on tablets of stone, but instead written on their hearts. 
And so the law is not contrary to the gospel of grace. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are gifted the Holy Spirit, and by the Word and the Spirit, we are sanctified every single day. We are enabled every day to do what the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. The law and the grace of the gospel sweetly comply. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, when all is said and done, when the day comes for us to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, no matter what it is that we have done in the body, no matter how obedient we think that we have been, or indeed no matter how bad a Christian we think we are, ultimately as we read in Luke 17 and verse 10, when you have done all that you were commanded, here is what you say, we are unworthy servants and we have only done what was our duty. Thanks be to God for his precious law and its ongoing use in our lives. As always, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. As a tiny act of revision, what is the difference between the civic, ceremonial and moral law? Question 2. What is the threefold use of God's moral law? Question 3. What things does the law teach us? Question 4. What do we mean when we say that sin is restrained by the moral law? Question 5. What do the threats and warnings and also the blessings associated with God's law teach us? And question 6. The Westminster Divines say that the moral law and the gospel of grace sweetly comply. Hi. That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn. And until next time, this we confess.